The purpose of the OODA loop in combat is to create these discordant moments such that internal structure is broken. Yeah, so, so once, once that structure is broken, they can't string coherent actions together. Like every action they take just moves them further away from their worldview and becomes more confusing and they get into this, what, what Boyd called the conceptual spiral, you know, they're toast. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema and this is Systema for Life. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, grand. Yeah, so it's um, it's it's nice in some ways not to know um all that much uh, about your work, except having having you contacted me and then kind of gone back through what it is that you do. And I'm kind of fascinated with um where you've taken the, the concept of the OODA loop um and the strategic kind of ramifications for it and how far it can go. So um, I think I think there's a lot to cover here. I think people are going to get a lot of fun out of it. So. Yeah, 100%. And I'm actually really interested to hear your take on the Uda Loop as a martial artist because it's not... Um it's not something that I've actually had much kind of in-depth conversation with with a serious practitioner of a martial art. Yeah. It tends to be quite two different worlds, so um, yeah, has the potential to be really interesting. Brilliant. So should we start with them? Um, because not everybody is even aware of what we're already talking about at the moment. So I came across the Uda Loop um, with a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Sommerfeld, now passed, sadly, um, who was a former Green Beret and, um, and learned the Uda Loop through his training. And then I became an assistant trainer with him in his facility, uh, military place um, up in uh, West Point, Virginia, for a little while. And uh, and he taught these concepts for combatives, like military combatives, and also for driving and for shooting and all kinds of things. And especially for shooting, he would teach it in the in the context of, you know, if you just shoot and stay still like you're on the range, um, then you're the target and everybody shoots towards you. So they had this constant cycle. And I think they actually kind of adapted it. They didn't, he called it the OODA loop, but they they kind of adapted it and just sort of said that you have to, you know, shoot, you know, observe, orient, like shoot and then move. So they made it really, really specific to like shoot, moving and shooting so you don't get pinned down and things like that. And then he would, um, you know, interpret it in various ways for driving, like looking further up the road to orient yourself when you're driving at high speed and things like that. So um, so I met it entirely within a military context and then since I've read a bit about it um on uh, some other pages and, and how it relates and how it's drawn from and, and been mixed with evolutionary biology and aspects of physics and all kinds of stuff. But I've not gone anywhere near as deeply into it as a concept. I've used it in physical practice a lot, mm-hmm. but I've not gone down quite the rabbit hole that you've gone down with the OODA loop. So do you want to tell folks um, from your point of view, uh, well, first of all, you know, how would you describe yourself and what you do? You're the founder of Commando Development? And- yeah, that's right. Um, and what do you got to do there? So I, I was in the military. Uh, I was in the Royal Marines for four years, and I never heard of, I never heard the words UDA when I was in the military at all. Um, mm. So uh, Boyd's work has only really become well known, certainly in the UK military. I think probably since I left. I left in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. Um, I went into technology, uh, being a programmer and uh, kind of you know dotting around startups and investment banking and things like that for the last sort of five ten years. Yeah, um, and I've really come upon the OODA loop from a from a research angle like I started to find myself struggling with non-technical things in teams of, of people in very fast moving circumstances which the technology field is uh, you know it's an accelerating rate of change across multiple different dimensions mm. um, and I started to research you know what can I do to make better teams and it didn't take me very long to come across things like team of teams extreme ownership and to start really kind of recontextualizing my military experience in ways that I could apply to, you know, building better communications. Um, and in the process of that research, I found the OODA loop. And and that's pretty much become my 
you know, I, I like to think as a, as a program, I like to think in terms of principles and abstractions, yeah. which I think we probably end up getting into later, but mm. the, the OODA loop has become essentially the abstraction that I reach for that I think is explanatory for most of the things that I need to care about. Sure. So did it did it start out as a as an OODA loop? I remember reading somewhere, I think, on the slightly east of new site that he uh he actually started out just as ODA. He just it was basically just like was it just observe direct and uh, decide I, and act yes. or was it or was it orient decide and act right away? I think I think it was observe, yeah. Observe, okay. decide and act. So no orientation um, at all going on. <laughs> yeah. Well actually interesting, I mean we can get into what implicit guidance and control means, but yeah. Um, you know, it's one 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 thing that's very important to to mention about the OODA loop up front, if any of the listeners have heard of it and they've seen it described as a circle with four little dots on it, yeah, that is completely wrong. Um, Boyd, mm. who is the, the the guy that kind of synthesised the OODA loop, never never ever intended it to be a a linear circular process. Um, mm. So it's the culmination of all of his research, and, and he was prolific. He he pretty much wrote the book on fighter fighter performance based mm-hmm. on his experiences in Korea. Yeah. Um, in the process of doing that, he went back to university to get a degree in, um, uh, well, I think it was engineering, but he covered a lot of thermodynamics. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, the OODA loop doesn't just encompass a lot of military doctrine and, and a lot of military strategy. It also encompasses physical science like um, Goddard's Incompleteness Theorem, mm. uh, the second law of thermodynamics, mm-hmm. and Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle. So it's it's a yeah. very broad and deep thing and it's just absolutely not just a circle with four dots on it so <laughs> so can you take <laughs> yeah yeah definitely before we yeah before we lead people down the dark alley so can you briefly describe to us what what are the stages whether um and what do sure. without maybe going into the full detail of all the all the things we know now maybe just as boyd's early theory how he kind of set it out yeah okay so so the the very basic kind of um five second overview of the OODA loop OODA, OODA stands for observe orient decide and act yeah which basically says that any, and it's not just about you know a person or a martial artist or a company. It's it's I I I think it's really a general principle that applies to any any entity that has a boundary that is interacting with its its environment. So that narrows it down. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> that narrows it down. That's yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, like I said, yeah. I really do. I think it's yeah. like the abstraction that I, I've always been looking for. Yeah. So you observe your environment. Those observations are mixed in with your current understanding of the situation. So obs- observation and orientation are your situational awareness, essentially. Yeah. And then you decide on a course of action based on um, how far your um, orientation drifts from what you desire, what you want. That could causes you... Can you, uh, can you expand that a little bit? How, what do you mean by how far it drifts from what you want? So we, we never have a concrete um, and exact map of our territory right if we had a sure. if we had an exact fidelity map inside our head of what the world was we'd have the whole world inside our head so we always have yep. these shortcuts and mapping so my view of the there's a really interesting um guy called carl friston who who came up with a thing called free energy theory hmm. um and i'm not going to get anywhere near into that partly because i don't understand the maths involved because it's very very deep but hmm. essentially when you have a a boundary between an entity and its environment the, the entity is always trying to minimize its surprise. So if your environment is, if you're operating in a normal environment that you understand well, you trickle mm-hmm. along, everything's cool, you know, you yeah. don't really get any big shocks. Sure. Um, when you do get a big shock, you want to act immediately to reduce the surprise, which either means that you need to change your orientation and understand what's just happened, mm. or it means you need to get the hell out of there and, you know, 
move to a place you are familiar with. Yeah. 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 Or a state you are familiar with. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the, the process of decision-making is the process of that entity seeking to better adjust to its environment, i.e. to the changes that it's just observed. Mm -hmm. So you decide to do something, you act, and then that action creates a change in the environment, which you then observe. And, you know, the process continues. That's the really kind of, basic high level overview of what's going on so so that um so to me i can see why that suggests a loop right it suggests the idea that you get to the end of act and then the environment has changed the situation has changed your relationship to it's changed and then you get to observe and orient all over again and so it looks like a cycle you would think it starts from a and then goes all the way back to the first observe again why is it not a cycle why is it not a loop it's because there's more interdependencies or it's so yes there's, there's more interdependencies so there's there's feedback and feed forward so um as as the so the process of acting and then observing the, the consequences of that action is a kind of a feedback loop. Yeah. Um, but also it's worth it's worth noting that I don't think that so in order for it to be a loop, you have to have an observation leads to an orientation, leads to a decision and an and, and action. There's like a, a chronology to it, like a directional yeah. arrow of time, which is in a yeah. Yeah. Which, you don't think that's true. It's like it can the, it can bounce. The, I mean there is there is a directional arrow to time, but it's it's a complex system, so inputs inputs are not necessarily directly correlated or even attributable to to. Or sorry, actions are not necessarily complete um, attributable to inputs. Yeah. So that means that you know, as your orientation is changing, every change in your orientation does not equal a decision and an action. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes you know, if you're in a familiar role, and we can we can go into what this means for martial arts. Hmm. You, know, you don't need to take a decision at all. There's no conscious decision because you know no. know it so well. You know, yeah. okay, I'm feeling this right now. I've drilled this a million times. Bang, next action, and you don't even think about it. Yeah. So that's that's why this kind of view of this kind of loop and and you know treating it like some kind of business process vastly misses the point. I mean, it's that that understanding is better than nothing. Yeah. But it misses the depth and the the nuance of what the loop really is. Yeah, I was going to say that because since learning it, like I said, I first met it in that military context and driving and shooting and martial arts and Brandon wove it into the way that he taught Sistema as well. And I practiced this myself and then I would teach it with my students, right, as, a, as another aspect of what we do. And then watching my instructors talk and teach, like most of them, again, come from this military background. So it was hard for me to divorce these from just conflict theory, right? It's, in my mind, I'm just yeah. like, this is a thing for conflict. This helps you prevail, right? Um, and that's in some ways, that's the way it was sold. And, and But I've seen it used in like sometimes in business websites or like consultants or something like that. And they'll be like, hey, you know, the OODA loop, this is what it does. I think famously the Japanese uh, automobile companies, right, kind of picked up on it at some point. And like some of them were kind of using some aspects of that in their like management training and things like that. I think some of John Boyd's works have been translated into Japanese and they got all the way over it and stuff like that. I I actually think it might have been the other way around. So I know Boyd studied Mm. the Toyota flow system. So there's a few, um, so Boyd's, archives of his researcher at Quantico, uh, the US Marine Corps um, yeah. library there. And there's a few um, folks who were lucky enough to go and basically pour through everything and, and you know, sort of peel back the layers of the onion, if you like, even further. Yeah. Um, and Boyd was certainly familiar with the to- Toyota production system hmm. um, and other sort of Japanese stroke, well, I guess Japanese um, doctrine on on business processes. Um, 
mean, a lot of those came from old like samurai treatises and things as well, though, didn't they? From like things like Hagakure and Miyamoto Masashi's Gordin no Shot, Book of Five Rings, things like that. It seemed like the Japanese tried to distill a lot of their strategy from that, and maybe Sun Tzu too. You know, like the Chinese have been using yeah. that for years for business stuff. So, is that the direction that it went? Then, like, like that became incorporated into Boyd's work, not the other way around. Is always... I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, Boyd. Boyd wasn't. He wasn't really prolific um, at writing stuff down. Like he only really started writing stuff down towards the end of, mm. I guess, the eighties and nineties. So okay. you know, the Uda Loop wasn't even fully formed until the eighties and nineties. And obviously, Toyota production system sure. and the ideas but, there that yeah, makes sense. Aizen and all those things obviously predate that. So I think I think Boyd was probably the one who synthesized, you know, Sun Tzu and Musashi and well, yeah. not, not so much Musashi perhaps, but he certainly was influenced by by Sun Tzu. Okay, gotcha. And so, um, so can you give us an example just before? Because um, I'm sure we'll probably go into some uh, conceptual weeds here at some point. <laughs> can you give us some con- uh, some concrete examples? Right, if you had to, of the OOD loop being applied, we'll start in like um, basic conflict stuff, like Blitzkrieg. How was Blitzkrieg OODA loop related? Right. Well, okay. So interestingly, that's probably a, an, another one that's the other way around because um, Boyd was a, a great student of Mission Command, which was the the German. Um, uh, Al, Al, I'm not even going to be able to pronounce it, but hmm. the German mission tactics um, doctrine. So, gotcha. Yeah, no, not employed. Boyd <laughs> advised the Nazis. Just that, um, you know, how would you explain the success of Blitzkrieg, for example, yeah. from a Nudeloop perspective? Do you see what I mean? Yep, yeah, sure. So, or Genghis Khan, or something like you know, something like that. So, yeah. yeah. So, Blitzkrieg is a perfect example. Okay. Blitzkrieg is a perfect example of uh, the mechanics of the Nudeloop, but also what happens when, when to to put it in Boyd's words, you get inside somebody or something's OODA loop. So yeah. um, Blitzkrieger was obviously the process of the Germans completely destroying the, the Maginot line and completely, you know, overrunning Europe in, in a few days. Yeah. Um, the and, original move fast and break things, right? Years before. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah move fast. Um, and, and, you know, it, it completely sidestepped the, the, the um, Europeans' readiness of, of any kind. So yeah. what happened when that line was breached was the the Germans were moving so fast that by the time anybody in in you know Western Europe militaries had some information to act upon, it was already out of date. Yeah. So what happens there is, and this is where the ther- the, the theory of thermodynamics comes in, hmm. is that essentially those people were acting with no orientation on the outside world. Right. N- new observations were either coming in too quickly, hmm. and you weren't able to take an action to to try and counteract them so you were just reacting 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 yeah and what what i I mean i'm not sure i've seen this explicitly kind of um written down anywhere but what i believe is is happening there is it's kind of like the process of entropy you know Mm. you can't create your own structure anymore and i guess we can talk about structure with in martial arts as well sure yeah you can't you can't create your own structure anymore so that thing that you might want to move towards becomes more and more nebulous because you just don't have any understanding of your environment anymore and I've certainly okay. experienced this rolling with, you know, rolling with Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts. Yeah. It's like you're in a swamp. You know, like, like uh, Ren, uh, was it Enzo Gracie said, um, you know, the, the floor is my ocean and I'm a shark. <laughs> sure. And um, everybody else is a cow or something. I can't remember the quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so so that, that's, that's the, the process of the OODA loop. The purpose of the OODA loop in combat is to create these dis, um, discordant moments Mm. such that people's internal people or entities or enemies internal structure is broken yeah sorry yeah so once once that structure is broken they can't 
string coherent actions together. Like every action they take yeah. just moves them further away from their worldview and becomes more confusing. And they get into this, what, what Boyd called the conceptual spiral. Okay. And then, you know, they're toast. Hi folks, Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our troubles. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. Yeah, brilliant. And so in that instance, it was it, it's essentially just moving so fast, right? It's not that they were, for example, being fed conflicting information. Like the Germans didn't like run a uh, counterintelligence campaign or something to tell them that they'd invaded one place and then invaded another. So it wasn't like an Operation Dynamo type thing or something, right? It was like just straight. They went so fast that the Germans, the, the French and the rest of the Allies were never able to catch up. They were in a constant orientation phase. Yeah. So they weren't able to make decisions. Is that fair to say like that way? Or yeah, informed so. decisions? Yeah, I mean, the the, the focus focus on the OODA loop is always about, you know, people always sort of, um, they always talk about getting inside the OODA loop as, as, you know, turning a quicker circle and and getting Mm. through the cycle quicker. And it's not really that it's, Mm. although, although that was obviously an incredibly important thing. And that was probably the main thing going on, uh, in, in Blitzkrieg, but it's really that kind of confusion and breaking of structure that I think is the most important thing. Yeah. So, so in that instance, they broke structure by going faster. Right. Yep. Um, but so there are critic- clearly there are other ways to do it. Right. So the same thing is true. So, all right, let's get straight back to a martial arts example, because then I'm yep. on firmer ground. Right. <laughs> I know where we're going. So in terms of, of that, I mean, you could see anybody with sufficient skill who has speed and timing and combinations. If they're a striker and they know how to if they know the way that people are likely to move when you pressure them, they can just overwhelm you with a flurry of strikes. And sooner or later, if all you can do is defend and you never have an opportunity to counteract and you're on the back foot the whole time, one of those things is going to catch you and then you'll be permanently disorientated via the brainstem pretty much, right? (laughs) Kind of that way, right? Concussions are pretty disorientating. They're a pretty conclusive way to disorient somebody. So if you're a striker, you can do that. If you're a BJJ or Sambo grappler, something like that, you understand combinations of movements and pressures in such a way that once somebody starts to move away again, they they never get a chance to recover their structure or position, not just their physical structure, like how straight they can keep their spine or how straight they can keep an arm or something like that. But their conceptual framework of what's actually happening right now, like, is he attacking me from here or is this a feint? Is this pressure, you know, supposed to give me an, uh, like an out so that I go that way on purpose and then get caught from around the back? So there's, a, there's kind of, um, in, in one sense, anybody who's sufficiently comfortable 
um, looks like a magician, right? Because yeah. they have so much, they can think so much faster than you that the speed of their um, orientation is what is overwhelming. But there's another, there's another aspect to this that I've experienced in martial arts, which is which I've experienced a lot in Sistema, and this is what we tend to focus on, yeah, particularly in striking and and grappling, is that rather than try and make movements faster than the other person, or to drill them so many times that they become very, very quick reflexes, like spine and back muscle responses, basically muscle memory, right? Instead mm -hmm. of doing that, we actually work on strategically disorientating the opponent, like trying to make him feel like one thing is going on, feeding him one set of information, when there's actually quite something different holding on. We also have spreading the, um, rather than sequential attacks, spreading the movement and the pressure over wider areas of the body. So you, you'll step on a foot, for example, and hold an arm at the same time, and then they're yeah. not sure which one to defend, and then you go for the neck or something else like that way. So there's a lot of different ways that I've experienced in order to mess with that orientation part of the cycle beyond just being faster and more fluid yeah. than the other person. Fast and fluid is one, right? Um, and that will definitely get you past a beginner, right? Or, or get yeah. you past somebody with moderate skill. But it doesn't, it, there's a limit to the power of speed, I found. Is there a corollary, would you agree with that first? And is there a corollary there that you can see with like developing, I don't know, organizations or products oh, or yeah. something like that? 100%, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely spot on. I mean, the, the other thing is that obviously that the better you get at a martial art, the better you get at getting better as well yeah mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah so you know with with the kind of you know going back to to my martial art if i'm rolling with a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt or mm. somebody who's you know maybe just a bit higher than me or mm. even a white belt sometimes <laughs> um um what what they also have is this ability to sense more that their bandwidth for or for observation is higher right they yeah you know the muscles in uh, the muscles and nerves in their in their hands and in their feet are more in tune and they have this kind of pro 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 proprioception that's the one yeah um, mm -hmm. which which just builds this orientation for them with minimal effort yeah so so what what i think happens there is you know i'm i'm working on my own models right that's all i can work on i can work on my own models my own understanding of my body the things that i've drilled the things that i've tried before mm. but they're just operating in a different dimensional space if you like right they're, they're just operating at a much higher bandwidth, much higher yeah. tempo. And there's yeah. just absolutely no way you can compete with that. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, you know, it's the same with, um, I was on a, there's a, an OODA loop call that happens every now and again. I was on the first one and there was a guy there who, who trains with the special forces. Mm. And he said, you know, it's exactly that when, when, when special forces talk about momentum, mm. right. They're talking about momentum in order to keep that that cognitive overwhelm going on, right? You sure. don't ever stop. You keep going, you keep going until you fought through. Yeah. And you you always, always maintain momentum. Yeah. And it's exactly the same with with, you know, that that's exactly what it feels like rolling with someone better than you in jujitsu. Is like every single thing you do, mm. like I remember rolling with a, you know, mega high Brazilian black belt. I think he was like a fifth down or something. Mm. And I mean, A, he was almost impossible to even move but at mm. one point where i did move him like i did catch him at a point where he's making a transition on a sweat and i i you know managed to get him luckily and, and swept him mm. it made no fucking difference because like, <laughs> two seconds like not even two seconds later he before Either he swept you back landed, or did something from the underneath right yeah but before he even <laughs> landed he was in yeah. he was in a, in a dominant position again and it was just like yeah i couldn't even sense what had happened so, so this was my experience at actually beginning Sistema. I've talked about it a little bit on this podcast before. I'd, I'd done a whole bunch of other martial arts for ages and trained with a guy and showed up. I was actually at uh, Imperial College, London, and uh, 
and there was a, a pub there underneath the uh, the Imperial College, and a guy was teaching Systema out of the basement of a pub like in there. And my first experience of working with this guy was like, I've become like a toddler. Like there, there's not only is he better than me, he's so much better than me. He understands so much more about what's going on in this interaction between the two of us that yeah. what I'm doing is almost pointless. It was just like being toyed yeah. with by a cat. Um, and it was a huge kick in the ego to realize that that was possible, <laughs> that, that level of, of processing. And now I understand exactly what it is and what he was doing and how it works. But if you don't have that understanding, if you've never done BJJ and then you roll with a, a BJJ guy, right? Or if, you, you've, if you've never really boxed at the standard of like an elite boxer and the strategies yeah. and the timing the way they think you're in a completely different ball game and no amount of armchair quarterbacking and watching it and saying, oh, I would have got him with a right hook. It's going to avail you. Right. So it's, yeah. Even the idea of the right hook would have, uh, you know, triggered the other person in that instance. So, so there's something in this, um, that occurs to me right away is that you talked a bit about feed forward mechanisms. And the first one that I can see is between the observe and the orient, right? Just looking at something doesn't necessarily determine that you're going to see what it is that you need to see in order to orient yourself to the situation, right? And you can mess with that orientation in a lot of different ways. But also the state that we come into that observation with, as you said before, we can't take in the entire world in every second. There's just too much information, too much processing required. So our brains necessarily narrow the cognitive window, right? And try and get us to focus on certain things and essentially just kind of tune for just the delta, like what change, right? Pretty much that's what the brain does. And it fills the rest in like, like a blind spot. Right, but it does that in every aspect, not just visual, like tactile, set auditory, whatever it's going to be, right? And and even your fills in your memories of things, like oh, I'm pretty sure I've seen this before, right? And then you'll go through the little tape in your mind, and it will lead you blundering into a a certain decision. So literally, so is that first forward mechanism or one of those first ones? How your state actually influences the way that you observe? Do you know what I mean? Like even that pathway from observe to orient isn't clean because if you come into it with a certain preconception or a certain um, state then you're not going to be able to you don't know what you're looking for in the first place you know what i mean is that, yeah is that, yeah no that one aspect? um and i actually think it, it's 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 useful to actually consider that from from the point of view of action first right so when you take sure. an action hmm. setting an expectation right you don't yeah. ever take an action without an expectation yeah so that expectation then shapes your perception mm-hmm. right so so your observation is then shaped narrowed widened sometimes but you know, you're you're expecting to see something as a result of the action. So, you know, obviously the, the biggest problem there is confirmation bias, right? If you're expecting mm. to see something, mm. well, you're a hell of a lot more likely to see it, even if it's not happening. So let's give let's give a concrete example. So in conflict, this might be you advance, you see, and you expect to see the other person retreat. And, uh, and to your mind, that's like, that's me driving them back. Yep. But if that was like a tactical retreat and the person's just kind of sucking you in, like it was a boxer and they just step back to draw you. And then one person, yep. as you come forward and land on that foot, you're gone. Then it's easy to see how you could mess with somebody's, that, that your preconceived idea of what you're going to do next might be a bad idea. Or maybe yep. you think you're going to throw a faint and then the guy flinches and then you come in with something else. You throw that faint, he appears to flinch, but as you come forward, he comes forward as well, right? He's read your feints um, and then he blitzes you that way. Just because you've rehearsed that combination so many times, you're sure it's going to work. But it, yep. you, you blitz through the, uh, the, the knowledge and the observation that might have helped you avoid defeat. How would that work in a, in a different context? So let's say, you know, you know, you're trying to make a, like a key business decision about whether to like expand like a certain like a division or, or like to cut a certain product and, and bring another one up. How would that kind of preconceived 
uh, kind of confirmation bias in the normal way of the normal way of operating in business right? the, lies, <laughs> yeah. the lies that we tell ourselves are the ones mm. that get us in the shit so mm. one of one of the um the things that i found most valuable this year with with all the lockdown going on is I, i've done a load of training with a company called red team thinking mm. um and the red team red team thinking is derived from sort of military um uh sort of trying to second guess strategic mistakes before they happen mm. Um, and there was a whole school set up um, and, you know, red team thinking has come out of that school. Plus, you know, it's been sort of adapted for, for Civi Street. But this happens all the time. I mean, especially as software developers, right? You, you think, um, I mean, it happens at every single level from, you know, the product owner going and talking to the customer. Mm. They think they understand what they want because they know what they want to build. Mm. So that, that's one. And the product owner comes and talks to the developer or they build a, a, an idea of what it is that they want to build. Mm. The developer who's already worked on the platform mm. has an idea of what is possible and what he wants to build, mm-hmm. she. Um, and, and so, you know, at every single interaction point, there's an opportunity for that to happen. And it does happen. Mm. So, I mean, and this is kind of, I mean, this is one of the things that maybe we could, step out of, of of the immediate OODA loop, but the fractal nature of OODA loops means that you kind of have to step out of your context. Like, you know, this is what Jocko Willink would call detachment. Right? Mm. You, you have to be able to see what's going on. Mm. And it's really, really, really hard to do that if your point of orientation is within the thing that's happening. Mm. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, in that, in that kind of the, the armchair quarterback example, yeah, I think you can watch, you can watch uh, like a, a UFC match and you don't have to be particularly talented mm. or skilled. Mm-hmm. You know, knowledge and skill, obviously, you get into the difference between that, but you don't Definitely have not to... commensurate. <laughs> Sorry? Knowledge, skill and wisdom are three entirely different things. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> so, you know, you, you could be watching a UFC match and, and you, can, you can probably spot maybe even in, you know, next near real time what happened and, and what was what was going on because you're not embedded in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, that's an interesting thing. So one of the drills that we do, I'm, I'm trying to relate it back to concrete things because I, I know you've got an interest as well and in, in how this might be applied in just like a, a one-to-one physical capacity kind of this way as well, like yeah. in the, in the, in real time rather than strategic decision-making kind of thing. Um, and one of the drills that we do is really interesting is that we do um, a wrestling drill where there's three people and two people wrestle. Like one guy is attacking a second and, yeah. And person two has to defend himself, like not be taken to the ground, not be arm locked, not be cranked, not be, you know, any of those things. But he's not allowed to look at the person in front of him. He has to watch a third person who's constantly walking like around the room, like different places. So you constantly, you're not allowed to look. So this does two things. One of them is that it kind of seeds control of your response system to your tactile system, which is Mm -hmm. faster, right? So your eyes don't lie to you when somebody's like doing things. And the other thing which I think is actually more powerful is it makes you feel like a third person, right? It makes you feel like you're not under direct threat in some weird way when you lock eyes with somebody when, and you're looking at them and they're barreling forwards you're, you're intimidated by their size maybe or you're intimidated by their position if you feel like they're in a place that probably should be dominant or something yeah. um, and you can make all kinds of decisions that then lead to bad um bad attempts to get out of it because you're orienting yourself as a person who's under attack do you see what i mean as a person who has to defend themselves first and then but if you follow somebody else what will usually happen is your body will 
if you have the correct training, will find its own structure so as not to be taken down easily. And then you will feel perturbations in the other person's movement. So you can feel them transition from one place to the next. And then you, you can switch to kind of an attack mode, but then you're not trying to do like defend, attack, defend, attack. All you're doing is like forming one entity which responds to whatever is going on. That's really hard to do when you're looking at the guy. And another, another example that we have is with knife defense, right? If you, if somebody has a knife and they're out of range, if it's against your body, it's a little bit easier because you can you have that tactile opportunity yeah. to clamp down on it and not let them get away. But if it's out of range, it's an extraordinarily dangerous thing. And of course, you should never try it. If you can help <laughs> it, you should just run all the time, right? But yeah. sometimes you can't run or you have to protect somebody or, you know, that that option isn't there that the bullshit guys like to talk about. Like, I would just shoot the guys. Like, well, then you would never have to learn. It'd be fine. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but the point is, if you have this knife and it's kind of in free play, like an open chain system this way, if you watch that knife and you try and watch for it and see where it goes, you will get cut to ribbons. Like, there's course, no doubt yeah. about it. It's not like keeping your eye on the soccer ball, right? <laughs> if you keep your eye on that knife, it will move faster than you can possibly imagine. It has the initiative with the person behind it and the central nervous system behind it. And it will cut you before you can possibly look have that transmission go from your eyes to your brain then yep. to your spine and back and then orient yourself in space and then do something right there is no way you'll get anywhere near it if you condition yourself to stare at the guy's elbow or shoulder instead then you have a chance it's what's very interesting is that you look for the first cues of movement mm-hmm. um, and you coordinate yourself much better and it, and you will actually see the beginning of him aligning himself to try and find your structure right he, he knows he can't t- cut you in an arm which is kind of hanging loose so he's automatically going to stab or cut at places that are solid so you'll see him aligning to try and do that right um, and then you have an option you have an ability either at least to step back and let him swipe or maybe forestall the attack or do something else as it comes through and then a really interesting thing comes when you zoom all the way out and you look at kind of the person's entire silhouette and his context in the rest of the room and when you do that you see the beginning you see his idea of of wanting to cut you you see actually what he wants and then you remove yourself from this idea of like i'm a person who's being stabbed and no matter what happens i've got to keep that thing away from me which is a completely natural response um but just that and the i know the sympathetic nervous system activation that comes with it already starts to kind of put blinders on us in such a way that our decision making process seems to get more and more cluttered right um and it's almost as if the the movie frames have gone from like 400 per second down to five per second and like he, and he's moving too fast for us because we can't see anything anymore it's it's drilling down too much so that just this practice of shifting the focal point takes in different levels of information for us and then that will it will seem to either speed up or slow down time. Of course, it doesn't slow down time. But what it does is reveal to you that there are certain ways of observing that seem to speed up time. They seem to make it seem like you've got no time to act or no time to decide. The orientation phase seems to take forever and they'll you know, or, or seems to go, sorry, blast by and you're just forced to make crappy decisions like right away. But changing your focal point can completely change that. Is it, have you got anything to say on that? What do you feel like might be at work there? That is... Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I've got a couple of things on that, actually. So um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Michael Ashcroft, is is an Alexander Technique practitioner. Mm. And he's given it, I'll I'll send you a link to the video, but he's given a demonstration of this just on video, right? So Mm. he sits there doing a talk to camera and he he does what he he calls expanding his awareness. Mm -hmm. So he expands his awareness to the room and you can actually see his, his physical structure Sure. change i mean you know he's he's absolutely still but it's almost like the focal length of the camera changes it's amazing mm-hmm. yeah um and another another kind of thing that that might shed some light on what's going on here is that i i like to ride my my bike on track mm. um 
and you know when when you're when you're you know over in a corner you're you're essentially riding a complex adaptive system right every time you, you ride bikes don't you uh motorcycles mostly yeah yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's that's what I mean. yeah Sorry. yeah, so I just, just yeah going back in on bikes yeah what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so so you know when have you ridden on track i haven't actually no i've only ever done road and so so when when you are like i live like 10 minutes from brands hatch so um i like to try and get there if i can but i've been i've been to brands hatch but only to watch a formula one yeah. on you back in the day nigel mansell <laughs> uh, <right. laughs> yeah. oh, that must have been quick and in uh, brands hatch anyway we don't agree <laughs> um so when when you're on a bike and you're, you know, you're you're cantered over in a corner. Hmm. You're in a complex adaptive system, right? So yep. every every time you roll off the throttle, hmm. the suspension geometry of the bike changes, which can stand you up or or, or actually no, you roll off and it, it actually tips you in. Sure. But my subjective experience is not feeling the throttle. My subjective hmm. experience is expanded to the whole bike, right? I am feeling the wheels, like the tires, the tires are part of my sensory system. Yeah. Can't explain how that works, but it absolutely does. Um, so, yeah. so this, so we call it. So this is um, this is exactly how Brandon Summerfelt taught driving. He's like right. literally, you get into the car, you expand your awareness to the tires, and then you they become like the soles of your feet, and then you and then you you breathe and you keep your awareness long and wide, and you look way up the road, and then the turns don't seem to be coming as fast. And if somebody comes out to try and barge you or something like that, you'll see their attempts to sideswipe you faster, right? And you, yeah. you'll be more aware of what's going on and that kind of stuff. And interestingly, we also have exercises for this. We'll literally do exercises where you pick up an object, like a stick. Um, or an axe or something like that, right? And you'll yeah. pick it up with a view to picking up the entire object all at once, by, by, by which I mean not like just grabbing the part around the handle and yeah. then you kind of feel the, the weight of the rest of the object dangling from the whole thing. It's yeah. like you pick up every molecule of that thing and then that becomes it becomes you and, a, and an axe, right? And then you are the head of the axe, you are the bottom yeah. of it, or you're the stick. And in doing that, it seems to become lighter. It seems to become easier to control and it becomes sensitive in a way that if people hit it or push it, it like you and the thing move at the same time rather than it being something that you're just kind of bludgeoning somebody with. And so literally we'll do this in, when we're in cars get fighting in and out of cars things like that you'll you'll you know sit into the seat of the car and feel the entire thing um fighting against a wall the same thing you'll get comfortable with the wall first and know what it is and how it's pushing back against you so there's mm. literally exercises that we do constantly to try and um acknowledge and blend in a way with the objects and our environment all around us like all the time that's kind of one of the one of the things yeah. that we do yeah that that's i mean there, there's a book uh not that well known i don't think have you ever heard of matthew crawford it rings a bell. What's the yeah, book? He wrote a book called The World Outside Your Head. No, I think my friend Martin Wheeler might have told me about it, but I haven't actually read it, I don't think. Uh, it's, it's awesome. So he he talks about affordances. So you right. you heard that. structure your environment so that your it offers you affordances. And and you know, mm-hmm. he talks about he's a he's a biker as well. So he talks about a lot of this kind of cognitive stuff in terms of biking. So mm. you know, you're riding you're riding down a um a well lit street. Um you've got uh you can see everything; it's really nice and clear. And there's a car coming out, and you're like, "Oh, that's no problem. I can see everything. It's all really nice and clear." What you don't take into account is it's nice and clear because the sun's behind you, mm. right? So you need to you need to kind of put your frame of reference into, you know, almost like empathy, like what, from what's his that point other of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that, that other guy might be seeing a great big fucking orange ball with nothing <laughs> yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah, and, and if, if that's the case, you're in yeah. trouble. Yeah, and I think I think you know these these things are all kind of related. Um, you know what you what you said about expanding your frame of reference to encompass the room. Like you know your your affordances there are people's reactions potentially if there's a crowd, right? Sure. They're the flinch reactions of somebody 
noticing that he's you know pocketing and not you know whatever you know mm. there's, there's there's more available so you open your sensory filters you're more likely to get that kind of intuitive response and allow your training to kick in because you get that early warning so so one aspect of kind of in a sense, like cleaning your OODA loop, right? Just making sure that it's, that it's not getting these inputs that stop you from not necessarily moving quickly through it, but moving cleanly through it, that you're getting um, good good filters of information that, that lead to good decisions as you come through, right? So there's definitely the problem of conflicting inputs, right? And implicit biases as you go into these. That's, that's one aspect. Are there any as- other aspects of how you how we can mess this up. Do you know what I mean? How, how else can our OODA loop get disoriented? And this can be in a one-to-one context or it can be in like a you know business scale, whichever you feel is uh, more explanatory. Yeah, so one, one of the things, I think we've already slightly touched on it, but one of the things that I think happens all the time in business um, is that businesses, especially at a certain scale, like they go through tipping points of different sizes of people and, and that kind of screws up the, the communication somehow. Yeah. When, when that happens, when that, um, you know, when that is not, is is happening, you you feel much less fluid, right? So, mm-hmm. what I think ha- is happening there is that the the communication that gets messed up means that, like, let's take a tech startup, right? You've you've got your first um, product, you've got it in the market, um, you think everything's going really well, you know, people really like it. You start adding people because you you want to scale, and then one of these kind of communications problems hits. Mm. So now you're oriented at the speed at which you were delivering stuff when you were a smaller team. Mm. So you start observing opportunities and orienting on, oh, yeah, we can do that. So you start taking on more and more and more, mm. but you start delivering less and less and less because mm. your, your, um, your communications are all messed up and, and you're, not, you're not actually able to service the things, the commitments that you've taken on. So it's kind of the Jurassic Park problem. You didn't stop to think about whether or not you should. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and what happens there is that you're 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 taking on more stuff. You're working on more stuff, but you're never actually delivering it. And a delivery is an action that takes yeah. that makes some change in the environment. So you store up all this potential, hmm. and that's a, a very you know it's a perfect example of you know making noise in your OODA loop, right? You've never actually made that link of this thing that we delivered on this day had this effect hmm. and then taking that back into the orient in, into the observation. Uh, and similarly, you know, when, when everything is directed from the top down of a company, like the, the boss is telling everyone what to do, hmm. you never get that sensory input, if you like, from the tires of the bike, which are your people on, on the, on the ground, hmm. you never get that flowing back up. So that's another way that you can kind of screw up in a group context you can screw up your OODA loop whereas you know if you if you look at a team in flow or a or a special forces unit or whatnot that momentum is happening and they're, they're making they're making their own changes in the environment the environment is changing mm. as they are as they are demanding of it mm-hmm. and that means that you never build up that mess whereas you know from the from the point of view of the people that are being attacked yeah they're 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 in that situation of their OODA loop being screwed up To all our listeners and Systema fans around the world, NC Systema have moved all of our regular classes online, live streaming group classes via Zoom most days at 6.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Standard Time, plus daytime classes on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Sundays. Please consider this an open invitation for you and your students to join us for the duration of COVID, to come together online, and to keep our skills and our groups alive. Payment is on a sliding scale relative to where you're at and what you can afford. 
visit ncsystema.com slash online to sign up today. Join us. So there's an interesting distinction in there and in that most of the things that we've talked about so far have been that kind of seem like conflict or confrontations in nature, in, like in the way that they're set up, right? Mm-hmm. So a BJJ guy wrestling a less experienced person, you're wrestling somebody, a knife out of somebody's hand, or you're competing with somebody like this way, right? But there it seems to bleed over into things that we manage to do to ourselves, right? Whether you're like a company and you've grown too fast and you've just not taken um, taken stock of how that's changed the necessary communications and strategy and the things that you should be looking for, right? So it, nobody did anything to you. No, tr- Nobody tried to make you fail as a company, right? You can't yeah. blame anybody else necessarily, but you managed to do it to yourself. I, I can see right away maybe ways in which we do this to ourselves just on a one to, you know, a personal productivity way as well, right? We can yeah. go into the day thinking, all right, I did my one thing. I did my 80-20 analysis Pareto principle. I'm down to the, the one thing that's going to make 80% of the difference today. And I've blitzed this all out i've definitely got to do this thing and then two others will start the day and then about two hours into the day you lose momentum people email you productivity funny cat video facebook stream <laughs> rage posting like that's you know and then by the end of the day you're like i didn't even do the one fucking thing you know what i mean like, it's a, like how did that even happen what's going on and you can chide yourself about it and then you can go back and you can be like I, I just need to focus more and just hold out more of that time um but then you play this game with yourself like i might be missing opportunities so, you know what's the what's the cost of me not getting back to this email in time what's going on and what I can see going on right now, some of it driven by COVID and people just being feeling like the 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 socioeconomic climate is uncertain, so they're not sure what to plan for, right? They have an immensely complex set of inputs, but they're also adding inputs to themselves. They're spending more time looking for information to to what avail, right? The, 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 is there going to be like a sudden change that, that a vaccine is going to come out tomorrow and they need to rush to the pharmacy to get it tomorrow? Probably not. Like the the, the consequential changes, are pro- unless you're a stockbroker, are probably going to happen over the period of weeks or months, right? So you're probably not going to miss something deeply consequential by not reading the news. But we're doing this. And in, in doing so, we're overloading our own decision cycles. And I, I, I see people becoming unable even to do the basic functional things they knew how to do coming into this are you, are you seeing some of this yourself from from your philosophical point of view like yeah. are you seeing either individuals or businesses doing this yeah totally i mean the 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 i mean i can i can sense some of that in myself you know mm-hmm. the, there's there's obviously you know i'm perfectly happy i've got a nice office here i i you know i'm a, i'm a i'm an information worker which means i have a bullshit job which means i don't need to actually go and have a physical office but mm. um but it's still quite isolating, right? You're still, you're not, you know, all of the mechanisms that we're talking about, you can't replace one with another necessarily, right? It's like cargo mm. culting a process from a business, one business to another. Mm. Right? Yes, the principles in place A and place B apply, mm-hmm. but, <coughs> but you can't um, you can't necessarily directly transplant a principle, a, a process from place A to place B. Mm. And I think, you know, I think we're vastly underestimating the effect that, you know, the pandemic and all of the recent turbulence will be having on people because, you know, it, it's almost, I mean, it's inherently, I haven't really thought about it in these terms before, but it's, it's a useful thought exercise. It's inherently OODA loop breaking because there's no action that you can take that has an effect on your environment because it's outside of your environment. So you're getting all these yeah. inputs, mm. but there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And so I think that might be, you know, we're probably underestimating it how many people are going to suffer you know not 
I don't know. I, I look at mental health problems as a, as a spectrum, right? There's fitness sure. and then there's illness. Yeah. And most people are somewhere on the kind of, you know, yeah, sure. there's no neurotypical, right? Like, yeah. Sorry? yeah. There's no neurotypical. It's like uh, there's yeah, everybody's yeah. on the spectrum of something. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so your, you know, your fitness is determined by your environment and, you know, you can be really, really physically fit. Like, you know, I've just got a Peloton bike upstairs and I've been doing that and getting a lot better, but guarantee if i went out running i'd be just as crap as i was yeah um and so i think you know i think we're probably going to see deteriorating mental mental fitness not mental Mm. health issues but just deteriorating deteriorating mental fitness and i think that kind of cognitive as a actually cognitive dominance as a Mm. great book by that title by by a brain surgeon and and it's i think we're going to see people losing some of their cognitive dominance as, mm. as the effects of this come come to transpire i think so so if we turn to like what we might do about any of this right not to not that everything in this has to be functional and you have to do something with it it's some of these things are just worth talking about in and of themselves right um but as we do it as we apply this in systema it seems to me that the process of cutting down those inputs the the chaotic inputs that come from combat or a situation where that you can't actively control right by definition it's it's a little simpler if you're in a competition for example and you have you and another person and the rules are known you're not allowed to kick them or you're not allowed to punch them or something happens you've already kind of limited the system such that it's less chaotic ufc is a little bit different because it's still pretty chaotic (laughs) and a lot of things can still happen which is why so many people find it interesting and exciting i think like more so some people find it more exciting than boxing for example or something because they're like well i just don't know what's going to happen you know a good striker might get taken down a good grappler might just get punched in the face in the middle of his fantastic kimura kimura transition like we don't know um so it's kind of unpredictable in that way in a lot of ways boxing is beautiful if you know what you're looking for but if not it's less interesting to some people right um but in terms of like the chaotics of combative situations of what could happen or even like um you know, personal security situations, trying to maintain situational awareness so that you don't even get hands on you, right? Or nobody yeah. can pickpocket you or get close enough to somebody that you're with to snatch them or something like that, right? When you're looking at that, there's so many potential inputs and there's so many things that you could be doing and looking for. And then when you get into a conflict, there's so many things, strategies that you might try and things you might do. One school of thought is like, just drill it so much, right? Just drill your techniques so much that you don't think about them. Right. And and so the myth here, and I think it is a myth, is that things just go to completely automatic response. And that in in a real situation, you automatically just regurgitate your training and it comes out perfectly and it fits the situation. All right. And the reason why I think that is a myth is not because there's not value to repetitive training. Absolutely there is, right? If you want to learn to do something precise, you have to practice precisely again and again, look at it in different contexts and then hone down how it works. But if you don't take account of the whole situation, we get back to that problem you had earlier on. You, you're triggered into a muscle memory response that you think is appropriate because of what you think you've perceived. Yeah. And, and it's the wrong thing to do. Like you grab somebody and hold on to them, try and choke them or take them to the ground. And they just start stabbing you like with a knife that they've got on them. And you can't let go because your muscle memory is like, don't let go of that guy. Otherwise, he'll get away from you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And Or there's a there's hundred other examples like this, right, where the thing that you've practiced suddenly becomes the thing that weighs you down, right? It's the yeah. thing that's going to drag you to the bottom. In Systema, the way that we get around this is, and, and you mentioned Josh Waitzkin when we were in the preamble and the yeah. art of learning and that kind of idea. And I was interested when I was reading that because obviously he went from playing chess to prep, was it Tai Chi push hands, I think. Yeah. And now I think he does BJJ with uh, Marcelo. He's a, um, he's a yeah, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and now a, a, sure. um, a, a foil surfer as well of all things. 
there we go. Why not? Yeah. So he's basically obviously found some hacks here that he can apply to everything. And what I thought was interesting in that is that he refers to this concept of cognitive chunking yeah. of like taking sets of similar skills and kind of bunching them together such that you can kind of put them on autopilot and then it creates more space for you to observe other things. Right. Yeah. So it's not, you're not creating those skills so that you can repeat them like a robot you're, or train it like a dog. You know what I mean? You're, you're yeah. actually doing it to free up more space for observation and orientation. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're not taking the decision out of it, but it does give you fewer inputs. And in Systema, we have these four principles, um, breathing, structure, movement, and relaxation, which is the most commonly misinterpreted one, which really means um, awareness of your entire environment and control over the tension and the force that you're applying, right? That it's selective, basically, that you mm -hmm. can be relaxed in one area of your body and tense in another, or you can show one thing and do another, right? And so much is contained within that. Um, and again, they're not pillars that go one from the other, but they're interdependent. And, yeah. and what we do in a sense is like with this idea of structure, instead of practicing a stance and we're like, okay, I'm pretty sure that if I stand in this way with my feet staggered and my knees, not too close together, but not too far apart, then I'm both mobile and stable. And if a guy tries to kickbox me, my, you know, I can pick my leg up or keep stable or something yeah. like that. That's fine. If you're fighting one guy in front of you, but as soon as some guy comes in from the side, the biomechanical structure is such that it's incredibly weak this way and somebody could just yeah. knock you sideways easily. So then you're left with like, okay, I need to maintain a structure in my body and integrity so it can't easily be pulled around and worked. But I also have to be mobile and I have to be conscious of what's around me so that I can consciously orientate myself to that. So instead of thinking structure to structure to structure, like I go here, I go here, I go here, we just have this whole concept and Underneath that is keeping your body pressurized, is keeping your spine more or less straight, is keeping the pressure distribution of uh, muscular and fascial tension and just kind of hydrostatic pressure in your body balanced out throughout the whole system. Um, yeah. There's all of these things. Uh, you couldn't concentrate on any one of them and do anything useful, right? If you focused yeah. on one arm, keeping it tense, you would lose the rest of the system. So we kind of chunk all of that under the bracket of structure. And then that becomes like the mantra, you know, when somebody's obviously losing that capacity, it's like structure. Yeah. And then the same thing is true of movement, right? Movement doesn't have to be with your feet. It can be psychological movement, right? If you, you feel like you, you have somewhere to go, you're constantly mobile and looking for the next thing. It keeps you kind of um, poised and ready. Whereas if you're too stable, you become brittle, right? So, and there were corollaries for all these things that we see everywhere, right? <laughs> and stuff like that. So this kind, of, this kind of cognitive chunking seems to me to be a way that we could maybe battle the situation that we've got now, right? We, we all know that there are too many inputs and people do obvious things like, I'm going to shut down my Facebook account, right? Or I'm just going to stop reading the news. But it rarely succeeds, does it? Like when people actually try and do it, it, it rarely succeeds. Um, yeah. They want to cut down their, their input, but they know that they need more information because it's chaotic. So can the OODA loop say anything or the, the developments on the OODA loop and how the, the various inputs feed into each other, can that say anything about how to balance that need for information versus too much and just swamping ourselves? Um, I mean, yes, it can in theory. Um, so, I mean, first of all, it's a bit of a fallacy that you need more information all the time right? Um, because information is not, um, is not insight necessarily. Sure. Um, you know, especially, I mean, you know, the tech industry is, is, massively um overwhelmed by this at the moment you know the pace of change is information right information is constantly changing hmm. More people come into the industry it's easier and easier to build capabilities you know people release new open source shit all the time hmm. you know the number of databases is expanding addressable niches are smaller so that is a, a massively information rich environment hmm. and you know what people sometimes do so there's a great um 
a very interesting company called Basecamp. Um, yeah, awesome. yeah. So, so what they do is they pick their they pick their tech stack, which is Ruby on Rails, which is arguably pretty dated at this point. Mm-hmm. They fix their operating system, which they call uh, ShapeUp, which is a brilliant book to read, um, full of these kind of really foundational principles. You know, you can you can pick up ShapeUp and you can absolutely see the OODA loop throughout the whole thing. Hmm. Um, so they have their methodology, they have the tech stack, they have a stable team, they have a you know reasonably stable customer base. They're good, right? They don't need to, you know, worry about the latest cloud native thing because they have a thing that works for them. Hmm. Um, now that's that's good to a point, right? That's hmm. good to a point until you know all the all the Ruby on Rails developers have got bored and moved on to something else. Hmm. Arguably, they've got their kind of they've got enough net network centrality in the industry that they're never going to have that problem. So they hmm. are they are an oasis in a you know in a desert, frankly. Well, okay, actually the opposite of a desert because it's information overload rather than lack. <laughs> um, so yes, I mean that I think you can. I mean, you could maybe try and do some of that as an individual as well. But then, you know, then you've got the serendipity. Like, you know, if I wasn't a little bit too obsessed with social media, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. There's, you know, there, yeah. there's there's that nonlinear effect. And that I mean, that's the, the, the secret of the social media networks, right? You've got this nonlinear dopamine hit that happens irregularly. So you never get... Um, you never uh, habituate to it, so you always seek it. Right, um, and it's very carefully designed and intentionally sure. designed. Yeah, it was a great conversation with um, Jim Rutt and, and uh, Daniel. I'm going to butcher his surname, but Schmattenberg or something like that. Hmm. Um, talking about you know the, the the way social media impacts our life is not designed or it's not inherently evil. It's just a mechanism that was designed to sell attention has sure. been co-opted as things always do, right? They get accepted or. Yeah. Um, and as an know. emergent property, it's destroyed our capacity for attention, right? So yeah, it's exactly. doing what it's designed to do. It's sold things really well. There's no one evil person at Google trying to destroy our brains and stop us being productive. But as a, as an emergent property of that whole algorithm, uh, algorithmic system, down we go. And the same thing with news, I guess, right? Where the algorithms show us more things that will either delight or outrageous and, yeah. and nothing that's in the middle right so yep. we spend all of our time delighted or outraged <laughs> it's like yep. the robots aren't trying to do it to us but that's what's happening you know it's like, and then then you see yep. the outcomes in the elections and the political divisiveness here in the states at least you know you see that a lot. yeah and, and I, but i actually think there's something really interesting to this idea of cognitive chunking because that's that's essentially what you know cognitive chunking is building fluency in in your OODA loop so that you can bypass decision making hmm. and i think there is there is definitely a um I, I couldn't sort of tell you what it is, but I think with a bit of, of thinking, you could you could have that, um, you know, Waitskin's idea of making smaller circles. Hmm. Um, because, you know, one of the working on this, um, you're working on this ability to, did my sound cut out for a second there? Uh, yeah, very briefly. We lost yeah, like three my, words, so I think my, we're good. Yeah. My screen, um, my screen shared, um, my screen went blank. It does that every now and again. I have to keep moving the mouse. Okay. Um, you have this ability to, you know, you, you try something, and, and this is this is exactly how the military learns, by the way, with drilling, so you'll be really familiar with this. Sure. You know, you, you try something. You don't you don't sit in a lesson and learn about it. You mm. actually go and fucking do it. So you yeah. try it first, mm-hmm. and then you debrief on it. So then you get somebody with a third perspective, Yeah. you know, yourself, if you're really good at kind of deconstructing what you've done, which Waitskin mm. obviously it is, mm. 
and then you figure out what to try and, and where to go. So, you know, for your example of the four principles, hmm. they're all intertwined, but presumably once you've, once you've done a drill and your instructor's looking at you, he would pinpoint which area to focus on as the, you know, the lacking area. Yeah. 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 yeah and, so. and to your point, it's like the more experience you get, you don't even really need someone to point it out to you. Like, oh man, that was structure. You know, <laughs> you can tell yeah. well, I just was not moving. I just got locked and, then, and that was it, you know? So, yeah. 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 So I, I'm sure there's a, there's a, you know, social media stroke modern life survival guide that that would look something a little bit like that. You know, these are your four principles and these are how they interrelate. And, and you know, this is your practice to um, to not be overwhelmed. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, it's just a question of knowing which levers to pull, right, and what those lenses look like. So, I mean, it's just finding the right principles to bring it down so that you're not indiscriminately throwing out the baby with the bathwater, throwing out all of your social media and podcasts and then never meeting Tyson Yonkaporto or you or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, what, yeah. what is your focusing window? So you could sort of say, I'm still going to listen to podcasts. I'm just not going to scroll Instagram. You know, like you could yeah. be quite specific about the things that you feel like might be bringing you productivity and worthwhile information and opportunities and just slag off the YouTube and the things that you feel like are just sucking you into more information or rage, like kind of that way, I suppose. But, but yeah, so a bit of a bit of a trite and banal example, I suppose. Like, But I, I just feel like it's one where, that could be just very necessary right now. And if there was anything to bring to the situation, like that might be a big one. I mean, we can talk about the uncertainty of companies and, you know, individuals and trying to, I mean, right now, I mean, there's people in within my systema group, some of them lost their jobs during COVID, you know, their yeah. companies have got downsized, they had to find something else really quick. Um, and either they're like retraining to do something else or they're like looking for another job in the same industry when the whole industry is kind of collapsing and not doing very well. You know, if you're working in an airline right now, good luck moving from one airline to another one. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. if you're working in anything people facing that's not healthcare, then you, you're kind of on shaky ground a little bit. So it, it can be hard for people to make good decisions, you know, yeah. and in the, in the context of so much uncertainty and this uh, an overload of information and even the information that you're getting is not reliable. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do you orient yourself in that space? Um, yeah. Not just defend yourself from the bad information, but just even shut out and chunk enough information that you can be like, all right, here's a principle I'm going to live by. No matter what happens, I don't know, uh, like learning is always good, right? Maybe that might be your mantra. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. If I spent the whole day reading something and learning about something new, ultimately that investment is probably not going to be lost, right? Um, maybe consuming is rarely good or something like that. You know, if you're passively consuming something, you're like, it might have satiated me temporarily. It might have like, you know, hit some buzzer internally that let me calm down, but it's probably not going to serve me in the long term and it's not going to help me cope with all of this. I'll retreat and I'll come back and it'll all be there. And I feel like I've got even less time to deal with all of it. You know, things like I'm just I'm thinking of, you know, other little algorithms we can we can work on, understanding that this is what's happening to us that, that might help ease the way a little bit. Yeah, actually that, that that listening to you speak has reminded me. So I I mentioned it very briefly a second ago, but there's a there's a great book called Cognitive Dominance. Yeah. Um, which is written by a brain surgeon and you know obviously you know it's it's about dealing with different types of fear and he has it you know four different fear quadrants of mm. um i can't remember now it's been a while since i've read the book i'm going to probably reread it off the back of this because it's very very good mm. but essentially you know different different tactics to deal with different types of fear so you know if you've got sort of chronic chronic stress type of fear mm. um then you know probably information or rebalancing your information is the right thing to do there, right? Mm. If you're if you're somebody who is, um, you know, a, a real kind of Democrat supporter and Donald Trump had won the election, mm. instead of going into despair, 
well, I mean, okay, maybe not. <laughs> maybe it's a bad example. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 there are rational, rationalizations that you could make yeah. to step outside of your, your bubble and realize that actually life will probably still go on. Yeah. And, you know, there are actions that you can take. Sure. Um, and then, the, you know, there's the kind of some guys just turned up with a knife, how do you not freeze type of reactions to fear. Sure. And obviously as a brain surgeon, um, the, the author um, has, has dealt with all different types of that, and including going back and deconstructing poor decisions that he was making in the time due to this kind of um, cognitive freezing that we were talking about. It's a really, really good book. This sounds excellent and sounds very relevant to what we do as well. Yeah, we talk yeah. a lot about fear and the capacity of fear to control you if you don't acknowledge you know, what's going on, if you, if you look at it as something to be ashamed of or, you know what I mean, like pushed out the side. Or even if you go the other way, I mean, again, with some systems of thought in martial arts, they're like, fear is there, you're going to get scared, so you should turn that into rage and then press forward, right? Which is an enormously... I mean, it can work. Don't get me wrong. It can work in some situations. And sometimes you just need to mobilize yourself and, and yep. rage can be a useful mobilizing tool. But I would estimate in probably about 80 to 90% of situations, that's a bad tactic because that's a recipe for blundering into something and jumping out of the fire and frying pan and directly into the fire, right? And it's exactly that kind of fear that will get you stuck when you're running away from a BJJ black belt, right? Or will yep. get you stuck when you suddenly sell off a bunch of stock or suddenly, you know, fire a bunch of people in your company and try and do another thing just based out of fear, just seeing it like an immediate thing going on. So that, that fear is its own topic entirely, I think. And there's so much that goes into that, you know, that can yeah. around and through. Um... Have you read any of, um, oh, is it Gavin DeBecker? Uh -huh. Yeah, Fear, yeah. Gift of yeah. Fear. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got some great stuff on there, definitely. And um, Rory, oh, God, what's his surname? Rory Miller. Yeah. Rory Miller, yeah. He's, he's... Meditations on Violence. Yeah, he has some good things to say. He has some, yeah. yeah. He's got some interesting stuff on there, definitely. Yeah, I like, I like all of that. Um, another one that was just occurring to me that has now gone out of my head. Oh, yes. Have you read, um, have you read any of the World War II combative stuff? Uh, only a few bits, like some of the Fairbairn manuals and stuff like that, and uh, some, yeah. some of the Dynamo and things like that stuff. But um, yeah, not yeah. not a ton. But so I was lucky enough to um, when I was in in Iraq, we um, had a few weeks downtime. There was a guy there who was a Royal Marines Reserve. Hmm. He was actually a psychiatric nurse of all things, but he had done and you know gone and read all of the defending manuals and basically taught himself how to how to hmm. sort of teach it. Hmm. And um, I think that the approach that that um, Fairbairn and Sykes take um, is really interesting because it's basically acknowledging the fact that your peripherals are going to get shut down. Your, you know, your peripheral vision is not going to work. Mm. Acknowledging that, you know, these guys need to go to, into combat in a couple of weeks, yeah. so you're not going to fix all that stuff, and therefore finding the shortest kind of path, which yes. is you know, gross motor movements forming the base of your art. art. Right. <laughs> not really an art in that case. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But you know, if it works, it's in with weapons like that. To, sure. Yeah. To, to yeah. basically make the most use of your physiology that you can at the time, you know, just going for the yeah. absolute kill zone and, yeah. you know, very, very focused, mm. but, you know, not very suitable for Civvy Street, which is probably why they didn't really teach unarmed combat when, when I was in the Marines. Sure. And, and I think um, like Krav Maga is based on a lot of the same stuff. I think actually yeah. Moshe, Moshe Feldenkrais, who later became famous for his awareness through movement and, you know, this whole methodology of building more embodied awareness in your body and then translating that into relationships and things. He started out as um, the first uh, judo black belt to bring 
judo to Europe, right? And studied under Jigoro Kano, the founder of judo, and uh, used to teach that all the time. And then he went, I think, I want to say the Six Days War or something, back to Israel, and then helped found the things that later would turn into Krav Maga, like with some embellishments. And a lot of those were based on slightly more sophisticated leverages, like from judo, and now we see in jiu-jitsu and stuff like that, but with this idea that, look, you're going to lose all <laughs> fine motor skills so all of these things have to work with stupid grabby hands and like lots of things like, like a big pack on and like a whole bunch of other things like that which is and you know it's different horses for different courses and, you, and especially if you've only got two or three weeks to train somebody something like that can actually be more valuable than three years of josh what josh wait skins trial and error and obviously some things you can't try and fail and then debrief that easily do you know what i mean like one-to-one mortal combat is not something you can come back from like now i would have got stabbed less often if i'd have done this you know it's like if you have a luxury of doing that then probably you got ptsd and you got some other things going on as well so yeah some things are hard to debrief there's no doubt about it so I, i'm being uh, conscious of your time time here mate and I, I think we could probably go on with this for like two or three hours really there's so much to explore yeah, yeah. but i'm just interested what um as a final kind of thing, what what really resonated you in that conversation that essentially brought you to us in uh, me talking to Tyson Yonkerporter? Because uh, for me, again, this represents that that book. I mean, there's so much that's great about that book, but yeah. for me, it represents a series of principles that again seem to underline, unify a bunch of other things. It's as, it's as if most of Western civilization plays around on the surface of yeah. different forms of um, democracy, different forms of government, different yep. forms of interrelations with each other, justice, things like that. And then you get down to some of those principles that he outlines, like kinship mind, that no, no knowledge exists in a vacuum without first acknowledging who you are and who I am, right? Yeah. And it's interesting in a podcast, that's often the first thing that we do, right? I'm like, who are you? Why are you even important? Where does this knowledge come from? Like, not just yeah. to establish authority, but also to understand the way in which you're going to take the information that I give you, right? And in the preamble here, I made yeah. a big, you know, we made a big um, section out of just me explaining the the angle that I came to this from so that you're, I mean, if you talk to somebody else, you're talking to a mathematician about a loop, for example, you're talking to somebody else who's deep in the weeds of business and management, you're going to have a very different conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing that you create between you is actually the useful thing. It's not that you you just came to this mathematician or he came to you with a big knowledge dump and went, there you go, Ben, look, you're welcome. Do you know what I mean? And that never, the realization of that never happens, that anything useful that we've just got out of the last hour was built, was woven between us, right? Yeah. As a result of this. And that if one of us was a little bit, was a bit too much, either I'm better than or less than you, even within the respective fields, right? And we didn't acknowledge each other's expertise and experience and that kind of stuff. It would change the conversation and the nature of that tapestry almost yeah. entirely, right? We weave a very, very different thing that might have been very shallow and not useful to people or, or, or conversely might have gone into a bunch of cognitive weeds and is useful to almost nobody. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Depending on how it's going. Like, so one thing, the kinship mind thing was fascinating to me on that one. And the other one was this relationship between metaphor and concrete things. Like the, um, you have these signifiers and the, the metaphors that you use are important. And to me, this really, this relates to both of our areas here in a big way, because even the idea of, the loop itself, right? I mean, you started out with a discussion and just like, it's really not a loop. Like, it's not a cycle. Stop thinking about it as a cycle, right? You obviously feel very, very strongly that doing that will somehow, is the wrong metaphor and it will lead you down some blind alleys that aren't useful. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so, yeah. so, so that's one example I can see right away. And there's, 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 innumerable ones in my world, right? Yeah. Even the idea of defend and attack isn't that useful, you know, in martial arts. That's yeah. I mean, it, uh, so you're right. I did have quite a strong reaction because it's not that it's the wrong metaphor. It's that, it's not the most useful one 
right every sure. every metaphor serves some purpose right so i've mm. i've seen a i've seen a video of um of a of a cop explaining the OODA loop <clears throat> in the context of arresting arresting somebody mm. and although he explained it as as the linear loop that i warned against or cautioned against it was still extremely useful because it it was sure. a it was a frame upon which to explain something that actually worked in their context perfectly fine sure so the the thing that um i mean what made me want to reach out to you is you you, know, you talked about um, um, you talked about misdirection, hmm. and that immediately made me think of you know white skin and and all of the kind of ooda loopy type of things that that I I nerd out on all the time, hmm. but but more generally the the the, the beauty of um, Tyson's worldview is is that the connections between things matter more or at, at least as much or if not more than the things themselves, right? And in the West we still have this very reductionist, you know, Renaissance era scientific mindset where we want to deconstruct everything down to the things yeah, and throw away all the connections. Hmm. And that's just completely wrongheaded. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if we were having this conversation and we were fixated on, you know, wanting to deconstruct, what do you actually mean by an attack or what do you mean by yeah. a defense? Mm -hmm versus the kind of really rich conversation we've had in the spaces between those things. Mm. So I think, I think that's where, you know, we, uh, especially as somebody with a technical background, like mm. programmers want to do this to the nth degree. We, sure. It, and it's, and it, you see it all the time, right? You see a business guy who's got this big vision and wants to kind of, you know, paint a massive picture of the world and how it's going to be. And then like, you know, work towards that. And the programmer's like, yeah, but you've got the for loop in the wrong place. Mm. And that, that gap has to be bridged because both perspectives are useful. Like mm. you, can't, you can't build concrete things without knowing how the things work. Yeah. But equally, you know, to make a real change, you have to consider a new way of, of putting these things together. So, so I, think, I think that's the beauty of Tyson's worldview. Yeah. Funny enough, the example that sprung straight to mind for me was when I used to work on a building site, like before, before I went to university, before I you know, grew up in Kent and my, my old band owned a building, civil engineering groundworks company, you know, just digging trenches and putting foundations in for houses. So I spent a couple of good few summers doing that, working up the money and getting very sunburned in Kent. And, um, and we had a conflict there between people who were like university trained or technical college trained, like uh, architects or like site managers or project oh, managers, right? Yeah. So they come in with the drawings, you know, and they, they know exactly how it's all supposed to be. And then the site workers, the laborers and the chippies and the, and the people on the floor who have just been doing this job for years, right? I was in neither group. I was neither a particularly skilled or experienced laborer, nor was I trained. So I got to look at this from outside of that orientation, you know? Um, but you could see this constant argument between the guys on the ground who knew how long it would take to get something done, what the practicalities were of getting this much gravel from here to here. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And like what you could do with machines and what you couldn't. And then the guy being like, but no, this is how the drawing looks and this is how it did. Or like even the simple thing, this is how the drawing looks. And then you go to dig and there's just like chalk and then <laughs> marble. I don't know what granite under there. And you have to kind of, there's a certain amount of it you have to do on the fly. And there always just seemed to be this constant disconnect in, within which they weren't, willing to see each other's experience right like the, the, some of the site laborers one of the guys my mate nick rolf actually learned how to read a drawing and he's like sat down a couple of days in like a porter cabin and asked the guy to teach him how to do it and then he ended up becoming a foreman 
just yep. because he took a couple of afternoons to be interested in what this guy actually knew and whether or not it might help him do his job. But you never saw people doing it the other way. Like it's very rarely did like the site managers yeah. or the people. Um, my dad did fine enough because he was a laborer and then went all the way up and then did it. So he understood their experience and what he was asking them to do. But very rarely would the person on the top end of that, um, you know, greater than, less than, which is another thing Tyson says that the, that's the root of all evil, just even thinking that you're better than or worse yeah. than anybody else in the first place. It's like you could see there was no kinship mind, there was no negotiation of knowledge. It's either, and usually it just ended up with um, authority, right? And I'm sure yeah. the same thing is true in the military, right? It's like, it's my way or the highway. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but Sarge is like, nope. It's going to get done. Actually, like. yeah. it, it is. It is in bureau, in in the kind of bureau, bureaucratic military, which is you know the the, the hierarchy, of, the, the hierarchy and power structure. But actually, you know, in opera, on operations, it tends to flatten out quite a lot because okay. mm. you can't have that fluidity with that with that imbalance. Sure. Um, I've got a similar story to to your labouring. Like when I when I dropped out of uni, I went and travelled around travelled around the UK with a bunch of pikies during the summer, putting up marquees for a nice. craft show. Yeah. And again, like you know, the, a bunch of you know real druggies like they you know they're all mm. fucking stoned or, or at least stoned at least all the time <laughs> stoned at best like, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and yeah i learned one of the most important lessons i've ever learned there which is you know when you're when you're laying out a tent that's a few hundred feet long and you're carrying really heavy shit on your shoulder to go and lay mm. out the ridge lines mm. do the far end first do the most difficult thing first because you're going to be fucking naked by the, time <laughs> you get to the end of it yeah and that's like you know that's a principle that I mean, it, I, I could have just not listened to that and I could have sure. not taken that on board. Mm. And I don't know. It's, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's sources of learning in, in every situation, I firmly believe. Yeah. So actually, so one more thing was on there. I promise this will be the last one because otherwise this really will go to three hours. Right? <laughs> um, and you've got to be getting late there too. He's like, my bottle of wine is waiting. I've got things to do. Um, there might be some of it left. if. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So it, it occurs to me when you said that things tend to flatten out on the ground and operations with military stuff. Some of that, is it not due to like distributed command? Do you know what I mean? There's this hierarchy, yes. but then you have these very specific systems of like, you know, you've got like a squad and then those are built into larger yeah. platoons. And, you know, and there's these kind of this magic of the power of sixes, right? You've got six people in a squad and they report yep. to like six other commanders. They report up the six. And this is very old. It goes back quite a way. And maybe there's some confluence here between Boyd's, you know, studying of the history of theory and conflict and how you put armies together and Sun Tzu and stuff like that as well. And then just how you can translate that into modern you know decision making and business and things like that there seems to be some sort of magic in that in that it's it's similar in martial arts to kind of spreading out your fingers you know it's just like your, your squad at the far end they're actually the things or maybe the analogy of being on the motorcycle and and they're the tires right they're actually where the rubber meets the fucking road they're the ones that are doing you know the movement and they're also the ones that are doing the sensing that's really where yep. it's coming through right so they're yep. your sensors and they're your actuators and then that's fed up through every part of the system and if there's any part of that system which is broken or has yep. its attention in the wrong place or is trying to feed down too hard way. exactly yeah, yeah then then that feedback loop becomes less useful let's say like it's yeah. still useful to have a hierarchy i mean i think the main reason they started doing that was probably so that they could um you know uh basically delegate responsibility to smaller and smaller groups so they were more mobile right so like, like a platoon commander or you know whichever branch of it is could could make a decision without having to wait for input from the general right so that's one thing it lets you move faster but i think it does something else in that it keeps the whole organism together doesn't it yes. like it keeps like the whole thing is there is there anything 
that you've had in that experience for that? Is that something that you bring into your practices? This this is definitely not something we're going to get out of quickly. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. I think that's really, really important. So so the, the, the rule of six um, or, you know, five plus or minus two, I mean, that, that's actually a thing in cognitive chunking. I think it's been slightly... So there's, there's a, you go and look at the chunking um, Wikipedia page. It talks about this rule of five plus or minus two. Hmm. I think that's been slightly debunked a little bit, but it's okay. still, you know, it's still a solid principle, right? You can't just due to, um, just due to the way. Working again, memory, right? You can't keep them on the seven things in your head kind of thing. Or yeah. I, yeah. And just, just due to the, to the sheer kind of mechanics of a network, right? Hmm. You know, to our, to our point earlier about things versus links, hmm. as the number of things in a system grows, linearly the number mm. of links grows uh exponentially or factorially i can't remember which offhand mm. but you know it goes exponentially, like i think yeah <laughs> so yeah so so basically the the limit of trust in a small team is around about four or five depending on the cognitive load of the environment now if you're in combat obviously that cognitive load is fucking high yeah if you're in a tech team not so much mm. but there's still a limit so mm. so that that fire team or or squad is the unit of of you know a, a single thing that is sort of self-contained you know it has you know one one or two heavy weapons and, and two normal weapons so it's you know it's a decent it packs a decent punch sort of mm. semi um, semi-autonomous kind of semi, semi-autonomous perfect yeah yeah um, and then you've got two of those in a section and you've got three sections in a in a platoon or a troop the royal marines call it a troop mm. and then you've got three troops in a company so then mm. you've got these other sort of autonomous units and you know they're they're in three. So you've got support structure, mm-hmm. you've got attack, which is the one that goes and does goes and does, and then you've got reserve. Mm. So so that there's that kind of fractal nature of natural systems that you see in you know militaries because that is the thing that has evolved. It's an emergent practice mm. that has evolved over a crucible of trying things and getting people killed over mm. hundreds of years. Yeah, so. You know that obviously you can't you can't just sort of cargo cult stuff from the military, and I think that's where some of these kind of some of these practices sort of fall down a little bit. They try and translate directly, mm. whereas what what I think you need to do is extract the principles there. So you know Amdahl's law for the networks, mm. um, mission command is a is a thing that's been extracted enough. I think um, yeah. the UDA loop, yeah, you extract all that stuff. You translate the principles into a new context, like the martial arts or business or driving or whatever, and then you let whatever emerges emerge from those practices, uh, from those principles, sorry. So you create new practice by allowing emergent things to happen. And, and, you know, the way we think about constructing social systems and businesses in the West is completely not that at the moment. It's very much, oh, we're going to design our culture. Are you fuck? You might think you are, but you're not. Yeah, nice. Well, Matt, well, we'll uh, we'll draw a line under that for now because I've I've got five more things now that pop out of my head. I don't want to ask you. Like, <laughs> know, yeah, maybe we continue can, a little bit via email, and maybe we'll get you back on the, at some later point, or or come on your one or whatever <laughs> to yeah, talk brilliant. about this a little bit more. But um, just for the meantime, where can people find out more about uh, you and your work, or maybe if they're just interested in going back to the the fundament and finding out about Boyd and where his stuff originates, and you know, w- what are some recommended resources that you might have? So recommended resources for Boyd: read his um, his biography. Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art, the face of war or the art mm-hmm. of war. Um, that really, again, to our point about you know context, that really kind of contextualizes his journey and, and where he 
brings in the different parts of his theory. Um, that's where I would start. And then, you know, hit me up. I'm on, I'm on Twitter, commando dev at commando dev. I'm also that on LinkedIn. And I would be more than happy to bend anyone's ear about the UDA loop um, if they want any further directions from there. <laughs> and um, and C- Commando Development, your company, they just Google Commando Development, find that directly? Or? Yeah, it's, it's commando.dev for there. That's the website. Okay, brilliant. But yeah, tw- well, Twitter is um, where I'm I'm more kind of, um, yeah, active. Bro. Well, Ben, it's been a, it's been a pleasure, mate. It's been, yeah, uh, it's been a real joy talking to you. Again. Yeah, yeah, let's, I'll, uh, I'll let you get to the rest of the bottle of wine now, and I'll, I'll uh, go and see my kids who've just come back from school, so that's about to make the podcast a lot noisier. I hope we didn't. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Systema, please visit us online at www.ncsystema.com. Thank you.